I'm Pat Healy from Los Angeles, California. Hi, I'm Matt from St. Louis, Missouri. I'm David Holland from Linwood, Kansas. The Sound of Young America is an independent production supported by listeners like me. If you'd like to support the show like I did, visit MaximumFun.org and click on Donate. I'm Jesse Thorne, live on tape from my house in Los Angeles. It's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Before we talk to DC punk veteran Ian Mackay, let's hear a bit of Waiting Room, the first song from Fugazi's eponymous 1988 debut EP. is a legend of the American punk rock scene. From Washington, D.C., he was the driving force behind the influential bands Minor Threat and Fugazi, and he now spends his time running Discord records and playing as one half of the duo The Evens. Ian McKay joined me on stage at the Benson Ball Comedy Festival in Washington, D.C. Let's get to our conversation. A few of your uh, peers in American punk rock have been guests on The Sound of Young America before. Mm. Um, Henry Rollins has, has been a guest, and um, Jello Biafra has been a guest. And, and something that I always find interesting is, what was the moment in your life where you turned from the rock and roll music that was on the radio in 1977, um, you know, Ted Nugent and Queen, mm-hmm. Uh, to this sort of diametrically opposed punk rock? Well, I don't know if I'd agree it was diametrically opposed because I think that everybody who listens, who has a really deep abiding interest in music, there is what the real reflection is what they're getting out of it. It's something to do with them. So you may have done your research in terms of Ted Nugent. Ted Nugent, I was a Nugent fanatic, which is always funny to people. (laughs) Um, But in the 70s, he was so visceral, and that was something that I really searched for in music. I just wanted music that was very serious. I felt like the person meant it. Because at that time, you had you know the Eagles and all these bands that seemed so absurd. It didn't make any sense to me, at least. When you see a man, and that, I mean, I was, I think, 15 when I first saw Nugent. And uh, when you see a man who's, you know, in his 20s, um, and he's got, you know, a giant beard. He's playing guitar and he's wearing just a loincloth with a tail <laughs> and, he, and moccasins and he jumps off of his amps and he cusses on stage, which at the time was, I'd no, I, didn't, I never thought that could be possible. I saw a Nugent show at the Capitol Center in Largo, Maryland, that at some point people would throw firecrackers at him while he was playing. And when you see people throwing firecrackers at a musician... And then he threatens to suck their eyeballs out. Um, 
I just thought, wow, this is really, really good. Also, Queen, <laughs> Queen was the first show I ever saw. That was the first band I ever saw. I think that really what the punk transition for me was I wanted to be a musician, but it seemed impossible that I could ever actually have the kind of talent or I didn't understand how one became a rock musician. I couldn't even remember how to play guitar. And in my high school, there's kids who were into, you know, Iggy Pop and David Bowie and stuff like that. And then there was this weird Rocky Horror Picture Show scene. And this is weird stuff that was going on. And one of my friends was really into the Ramones. And he would just argue with me about whether the Ramones rocked harder than Ted Nugent, which just seemed impossible to me, you know. And at some point, he lent me, I borrowed some records, some from my older sister and some from a friend of mine, uh, uh, these punk records and when I first put the, put the music on it was the first Sex Pistols record the Clash album you know I made The Damned and Jam and there was a band from New York called The Tough Darts very obscure but pretty interesting band I remember putting the records on and at first it did not sound like music at all and that's always encouraging I think when I first heard hip hop I remember thinking like what is it I don't even understand what's happening here and that's when you know that somebody has had some vision they've taken an idea a form of expression and they've They've, they've, they've rejiggered it. They've moved it around in a way that it really makes you, if you're interested in music, you sit up and take notice. And when I first heard punk, I thought I couldn't make sense of it. It was scaring me, especially the Sex Pistols record just scared me. It did, I mean, you had a song about an abortion, and that just seemed scary to me at that time. Um, and at some point, though, I started to get enough of an understanding of I could see the rock influences, and then I realized that in many ways, like punk rock, if you're thinking about it, like say it's an analogy like food, that if you're raised in America and you eat only hamburgers and french fries every day of your life, and then you go to like a, a Vietnamese restaurant, what they put in front of you is completely like you c- can't make sense of it. But if you eat it, you might realize that it, not only is it better, it's better for you. And I think that's the way I felt about punk rock. And once I really kind of got involved and started the first show I saw was a band called The Cramps. I saw them at um in January of 79 at this crazy benefit show up at George uh, Georgetown University. A benefit show which by the way so much damage was done that I don't think anybody was benefited. Um um but that show was so surreal and I thought at that moment like this is where I want to be. This is a room filled with people who are um, challenging every conventional idea that our society has to offer. And I think the conventional ideas our society has to offer quite often um, are extremely um, unhealthy. I want to ask you about um, that idea of honesty that, that you were talking about, that honesty on stage that you saw in a way in Ted Nugent. Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of the early English punk rock bands were... Very, were very. I mean, the Sex Pistols, for example, are challenging everything, but in a very performative way, mm-hmm. uh, rather than in a very personal way. Um, if if that makes sense, if, if it that makes means sense. But I mean, you're, but yet, you, as an observer, that might be your point of view. I think if maybe if you lived, I don't know this. I'm just saying, if you lived in London at the time, if you were, you know, if you were in within that scene, I think most people have to remember that, like the band I was in, Minor Threat, for instance. I wrote the song Straight Edge and essentially coined the phrase. And for many people, there's many people who don't never heard of Meyer Threat, maybe never heard of punk rock, but have heard that phrase, heard that term straight edge. Um, but I think people today who talk to me about that, it's impossible for them to, to believe or to understand that I was writing to 
15 friends of mine. It never would have occurred to me in 1981 that I would be on your radio show, for instance. You know, it just would never, this never would have occurred to me. That was me. just a dream back then. I would, yeah. <laughs> I was like, if only, if only. But the, um, but you know, that's the thing. Like, I had a, I had a situation um, where um, I did a show in Brazil, and there was a kid boycotting the show, a straight-edge kid, and he was, he was so furious with me because he said that the owner of the club, who I didn't know, I didn't know the owner of the club, apparently had sold cocaine. And he was like, how could you play here? And I thought, this is crazy. Like, I mean, when I was 19 years old and I wrote the song, I really, I, you know, I'm thinking like maybe I can play the, the song to my friends, you know. I'm really writing all those songs to my friends directly. And it's possible, I don't know this, that Sex Pistols were really writing songs to people they knew. I don't know, but that's, that's one of the transformative things about art. Once an idea goes out, it's not yours, and it belongs to everybody else. And I think the Sex Pistols really created something, and they had a lot of hype. That was something that I, wasn't, I never really was involved with. You know, they had a, a lot of machinery. I, we didn't. But we took the message we got from the Sex Pistols and these other bands was to sort of reject the normal way and just do it yourself. And that made a lot of sense, especially for a kid growing up in Washington, D.C., where there is actually... There's no rock industry in this town. I mean, it just doesn't really exist. And it's certainly not in the 70s. I mean, can anybody here name, like, a popular rock band from Washington, D.C. in the 1970s? Let the record show that not a single hand has gone up. <laughs> so, I mean, this is, it just didn't exist. I think if you grew up in this town, um, you were told to move to New York. If you want to play music, move to New York. If you want to be a lawyer, stay here. If you want to, you know, that's the thing. If you want to be in a band, I was told once if I wanted to be a punk, I had to move to New York. And I thought, well, how on earth could, like, boredom, creativity, passion, frustration, anger, why would that be a geographic <laughs> distinction? And I thought, but see, I'm a fifth-generation Washingtonian, so I wasn't going to go anywhere. This is my town. What was it that... Um, what was it that inspired you and, and to some extent your peers to look inward in your punk aesthetic? Um, you, you described it a, a minute ago, that idea of, um, that idea of re-examining outside ideals, but in, in your music that's often been expressed by re-examining your own ideals and thinking about what you can do um, uh, to live better, be better, rather than to do something like the the very first impulses of, of punk rock and an important part of punk rock any time, which is, I'm angry, mm-hmm. F this. Well, I think that this sort of, first off, punk rock, and I use this term, I was thinking about this on the way down here today, actually. Um, the word punk is such, it's a very nebulous term. And so from my point of view, I think of it as a free space. It's a place where new ideas can be presented and it's not something, it's like ideas can be presented without being sort of totally directed by profit. That's it. So that's punk to me. But I understand for other people, punk might be, you know, it has a million different definitions. It's regional. It's generational. Um, and there's also, largely thanks to the media, and a really negative kind of connotations to it, that it's nihilistic or self-destructive or whatever. And maybe it's not even worth using the word. I don't know. But it's just my portal to, like, finding the counterculture, the underground that's where I came in, punk rock. So I think that the sort of more explosive, rebellious, sort of negative aspect or nihilistic-seeming aspect of punk rock, it, it did certainly exist in certain areas. I think not everywhere. I think, in, at least in Washington, I think largely we just wanted to be a part of a family. 
And if you want to be a, a part of a family, don't like destroy each other. I mean, you don't want to destroy. You actually are trying to create a community of some sort. And I think that in our world, at least, we were thinking like, well, we want life to be better. So you sing about how might it be better. You might complain, but then what, what next? It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest, Ian Mackay, is a punk rocker well-known for living a lifestyle free of drugs and alcohol. Here's the song Straight Edge by his band Minor Threat that first elucidated this theory. with punk rock legend Ian Mackay after a break. It's the sound of young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. Max FunCon is an annual convocation of awesome, hosted by me, Jesse Thorne, and MaximumFun.org. You can spend a weekend in beautiful Lake Arrowhead, California, enjoying classes and shows from some of our favorite past Sound of Young America guests. This year, we'll have Jonathan Colton, Casper Hauser, Maria Bamford, Mark Marin, Al Madrigal, Jimmy Pardo, Andrew WK, and more. Registration for MaxFunCon just opened, but beds go fast. Visit MaximumFun.org for more information and registration. Production of The Sound of Young America is underwritten in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered. Online at ask.metafilter.com. It's The Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is Ian Mackay. He's a legend of punk rock, having played with bands like Minor Threat and Fugazi, and now the Evens run the independent label Discord Records for more than 20 years and generally just been a super principled, amazing guy. When you started out, you mentioned that you were wanting to belong to this community or this family. And it, it strikes me that the families of punk rock were very geographically specific. Um, what was what was special and different about what was going on where you lived here in Washington, D.C.? Um, well, it's true, especially in the early punk rock, it was extremely regional because I think it's worth noting that there was, of course, no internet. Um, <clears throat> there wasn't even really MTV. I'm sorry, there was no internet? Yeah. <laughs> um, there was no MTV. There was no, like... How did you order pizzas? Exactly. <laughs> Yeah, what happened to that? What happened to the ordering movies on? I did, I oh, I want, I want, yeah. The company I want to come back is the one that would like just bring you a candy bar. Like you yeah. could just type in candy bar and what it were would, they, br- they would bring you one. What were they called? Candybar.com. No. There was somebody here. Do you remember the group here? Bog Dog. I remember there was some, or something, yeah, some guy, a friend of mine called me and said, I just, I just ordered a pint of ice cream and this guy brought it to me. <laughs> I thought, man, that's, that company's going out of business. And they did. But they, um, 
I think that at that time it was extremely regional. So basically we just had pictures to look at. Like we could look, we could listen to the records. We could look at the picture, but there was no actual, we couldn't see film of these other bands. So people had an idea of what punk rock was, but it was coming through a very regional point of view. And it wasn't really until MTV in the kind of early 90s where it really started to become sort of almost federalized and then worldwide. Like you could find some... I mean, Fugazi toured around the world, and everywhere he went, there were, at some point, like 1993, a kid with a baseball hat on backwards would be crowd surfing, no matter what. And I thought, wow, this is this is the power of television. It just flattens everything out. Now, I would say, to answer your question in terms of, I mean, I can't really answer what was special. All I can tell you is that I was here and we were here, and that's it. That just, I, and we'd go to other cities, and it was fascinating to see what they were up to. And sometimes, you know, inspiring, sometimes really discouraging. I mean, there was some really deeply unpleasant things occurring also. And I think that if you read about early punk rock, a lot of times you'll you'll hear people talking in terms, especially the dudes who are talking about, like, their history, and they're like, yeah, it was crazy, you know, we stabbed that guy, and that, you know, and... But that's so it's so it's so typical that like at some point someone's going to talk about how crazy everything was and it's always some white dude eh, I don't know man we were crazy that was history that was when it ended and but then I think that ultimately all the this sort of stuff that was going on the truth is I think that there were people who cared this much about the music that they were willing to put up with all that nonsense you know all these the crazy thugs doing that stuff I mean, there were bands like the Minutemen who were deeply important bands who traveled around the world in a van. You know, this is, this is and because they, they loved music and they, they really cared about it. And I think that a lot of us saw it as not destruction work. It was construction work. We were actually trying to create something that had some effect on the culture. And the fact that I'm finally made to this particular radio show, I think, shows that we succeeded. So, um. When you went on the road, what, what did you find that was inspiring? What inspired you in other places? I think um, meeting kids in other towns and seeing how they had interpreted the idea. And then in the beginning, that was fascinating. Um, and then in the uh, going to Europe in the late 80s and early 90s, seeing the youth center and squat culture, which was fascinating. I mean, and, you know, you pl- you know, we played a shows like in, in Italy, in Rome, outside of Rome, that these kids had squatted a 19th century fort that literally had a moat around it. <laughs> And you know, did show. I mean, it was it was completely incredible. And they had run power from electric lines. They had hijacked power. And I mean, but this is you saw all around Europe. You'd find these places. And now I think people um, in the last decade, people in the states have kind of really started to develop these sort of free spaces. Again, creating places where music can be presented or ideas can be presented, and it's not merely just the bar, the bar, the bar, always. And I think that it's always encouraging, also, just to see people who have an interesting uh, vision or interpretation of, of stuff that's come before and what they're doing with that. You, when you toured, um, especially later with Fugazi, you became famous for um, the way that you toured, um, touring in often non-traditional venues, um, rarely if ever charging more than 5 or $10 for tickets, um, touring with a very light overhead and a very light show so that you could uh, afford to play shows on a percentage basis rather than with a guarantee so you could play in non-traditional mm-hmm. venues. All, all these things. Um, why was it worth it to you to do the work to go on tour without a tour manager or go on tour without a booking agent 
uh, booking your shows in, in advance of you. Why not just say, I'm the artist, I'll hand off the other stuff to somebody who likes that? Well, a couple of weeks ago, I believe you called me about being on this show. And I assume that you understand that there is, it's not merely like a fiscal decision. It's fascinating to be able to talk to people. And it's much more interesting to me. I, I don't want other people handling my business. I actually like doing it. I like talking to people. I like, I mean, booking the shows is an incredible process if you are interested in it. Um, I also love to drive. I mean, I've driven all over the world. It's fascinating. I like driving. I like doing the work. That's actually the, the point. The work, people say to me like, oh, you know, you make a living from your music. It's not exactly true. I make my living from my work. And I work hard so I can play music. That's, that's the way I look at it. So for me, all the stuff that we did, the way we, we approach things, we're thinking we want to have a show. We want to make a show. And to make a show, you know, we're the band. We have these songs. And then we need an audience. So, for instance, if this particular audience here was not here today, it would be a much more awkward. It would be an awkward show, don't you think? <laughs> yes, yes, you do think. And, um, so... I think th- we'd still have Christopher over yeah. there. Um, but the idea would be that the sh- that really that the five dollars. I mean, we really did shows for five or six bucks. That was like the Fugazi idea: five dollars shows. Partly in the beginning because it just seemed reasonable. In the end, because it just seemed funny to us. It really, <laughs> it just seemed funny because the truth is, rock and roll economy is a total illusion. Like the fact that people are charging. Like I read an article recently about a major touring band who was like trying to charge only $95 for the show. And I thought, wow, this is completely insane. The inflation of rock and roll tickets, it is just pure greed. That's what it is. It's just greed and too many people wanting pieces of pie. Um, We knew that if you come into a room, say a club, and you're going to play somewhere, and you say to them, you dictate the, the ticket price, and you say, hey, we're going to work only on percentage, meaning that we're not demanding a high guarantee, that that actually sets a whole other chain of uh, events in place. Because suddenly they realize, well, we really want the band in the room. Um, we want them here. And we can only generate this much money. So how, do we, how can this possibly work? And you realize you don't really need to pay like seven guys to load in the gear. You don't really need to have like this incredible like spread of food. And also, you just need, everyone just needs to chill out a little bit. Like just don't need to make so much money tonight. But when you have a band come in and they're demanding a really high guarantee, then everybody else is like, well, if they're going to make that much, then I want this much. And at some point, if everybody wants a larger piece of pie, then you just had to make a bigger pie. And that pie, ladies and gentlemen, is the ticket price. And that's what people end up paying. That's it. So it was really actually challenging. It was creative. And it was funny to us to go into these rooms like the Palladium in Los Angeles and say $5. And like, you're insane. We're like, let's make it work. But at the end of the day, Fugazi was aided by the fact that we were a very popular band. So, I mean, we, we did three nights at the Palladium. And I think that, that the Palladium people are like, well, okay, you know, you guys are going to fill the room. That's great. Um, but ultimately, all of this, I'm just trying to find creative ways to interact with what I find is largely an odious business, which is the rock and roll industry. And if you do have to do something within that, do it so it's somewhat engaging, um, creative, and funny. 
It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking live on stage in Washington, D.C. with a legend of Washington, D.C. music, Ian Mackay. He was the leader of the bands Fugazi and Minor Threat, and now is half of the band The Evens. Uh, this comedian Todd Barry is here at this festival, one of the funniest comedians in America. He has this wonderful joke about Fugazi, um, which you, you may have heard. I'm going to paraphrase it and, and destroy it, but uh, basically he's telling the joke from the perspective of a different guy in Fugazi besides you, uh, saying, hey, let's raise the ticket price of... Uh, the difference between five dollars uh, a ticket if there's a thousand people at the show and seven dollars a ticket is I don't have a roommate when I'm forty. <laughs> have you ever heard that joke before? I what do you think? I heard that joke. Yes, I heard that joke. I felt like he's here. We we might as well broach the subject. Well, it might be worth noting that that person has four kids and owns a house, so I think that he didn't have to work when he was forty. So I don't think that. Uh, it worked out that way. But it's a funny joke. It's real funny. <laughs> real funny. You're a guy who um, put out essentially a, a program, a program f- for yourself, but one that was interpreted as, as being a, um, you know, a sort of call to arms and started a movement when you were like a teenager, when you were like 20 years old or something like that with, with Minor Threat. And I, I would hate to have to live my life with people having expectations of me based on, you know, bold statements that I had made when I was 19. You know what I mean? Okay. How, how have you... What bold statements did you make when you were 19? Well, I made relatively few. I'm, I'm li- and certainly the ones that I did, I mean, I, th- most of them were about, like, the San Francisco Giants bullpen. <laughs> but... <laughs> <laughs> so, certainly, like, uh, you know, like the very end of Goose Gossage's career, I might have disparaged him a little bit. Um, certainly, Dennis Cook, left handed yeah. reliever Dennis Cook, might be upset with me. Um, <laughs> but you, when you made bold statements, they were, you know, records that became very important records in this huge cultural movement. And you've had to live your whole life with those things that you said when you were 19. When I said them, it was just to a buddy of mine in my freshman year of college or something like that. How, how has that affected your life, to have um, committed yourself to bold principles um, at you know, the fieriest point in human life? Hmm. I mean, I wasn't joking, so I'm serious about this stuff. And it's actually... Uh, People often ask me, like, well, do you regret anything, the song? I said, actually, I, I stand behind all my lyrics because I understand where they're coming from. I also understand that the way maybe I was singing them when I was 19, that evolves, you know, and I'm, I'm 47 now. So I can, I can clearly see myself when I was 19 or 20 and recognize certain, like, sort of the way I behaved or, you know, you know I can understand, I can put that into a context of being a younger person, um, but actually, it's in terms of my songs or the music I made, well, it's, it's just like a flight of stairs. Everything I've ever done got me to where I am, you know. And if I, you know, and and and, and I don't really think in terms of, of mistakes or, or, and I don't regret anything, honestly. I mean, I think it's incredible that um, that this music, that these songs, again, I wrote them for fifteen or twenty friends, you know, really. And the fact that it had it, a life of its own, and that. I mean, I had a friend, actually a really good friend of mine in high school, who, by the way, was 
the, one of the first people who introduced me to punk rock. I saw him recently. I had lunch with him. And he has a 13-year-old son. And his 13-year-old son is a massive Minor Threat fan in 2009. And I think that's just incredible. The idea that music, not that I'm, I don't think I'm a genius. What I think is that music actually has, if it's, if it's created in a way that is honest, that it can still resonate. The kids still can go like, yeah, that actually means something to me. And when I wrote those songs in Minor Threat, I, I can tell you this, quite deliberately, I didn't sing about Ronald Reagan. I didn't put anything in there that was dated. I just sang about being a kid because that's all I really knew. And, the, and I think that is an eternal like, reality for young people. They can, re, they can relate to that. Um, maybe. You know, that's my sense. But in terms of having to be held up to things, I'm not real worried about that. I don't really care. I think most people meet me and they think, wow, he's shorter than I would have thought. And, um, <laughs> and also I think people think, think of me as a real fundamentalist and I'm really angry and like judgmental. And I'm sorry that people feel that way about that. But I'm not going to spend my time trying to correct them. I have too much work to do. Well, Ian, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the San Diego America. It was great to have you. Ian Mackay. Ian Mackay helped invent DC hardcore punk rock with his band Minor Threat. He went on to help invent alternative rock with his band Fugazi. Today, he plays with his sweetheart as half of the band The Evens. He's also the head of Discord Records. You can find them online at Discord. That's D-I-S-C-H-O-R-D.com. Before we're done with Ian, here's a song from his most recent project, The Evens. It's called Shelter 2. Went out, That's our time for another Sound of Young America program. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our music provided by Dan Wally. The show edited by Nick White. Our intern is Mariel Reyes. You can find us online at MaximumFun.org. If you'd like MaximumFun.org stuff, like Sound of Young America t-shirts and whatnot, visit us at MaxFunStore.com. That's MaxFunStore.com. Um... If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My email address, and it's my real actual email address, is jesse, J-E-S-S-E, at MaximumFun.org. Jesse at MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America.